Well, we've reached the last figure in Steve Lawson's book, Pillars of Grace, that we've been going through, and it is John Calvin. Um, after this, I plan to continue on in church history looking at some other figures, the Puritans and, and others, up more close to our modern day time, but this will be the last one in this particular book, John Calvin. I'll start with a quote by John Calvin. Actually, it's two quotes. The first one goes this way. He said, When God elects one and rejects another, it is owing not to any respect to the individual, but entirely to his own mercy, which is free to display and exert itself when and where he pleases, in order to humble the pride of the flesh. There's the first quote. The second one says, since God places your salvation in Himself alone, why should you descend to yourself? Since He assigns you His own mercy alone, why will you recur to your own merits? John Calvin. A scripture related to these thoughts from Romans 9. I just want to read a few verses before we begin looking at Calvin's life. Romans chapter 9. I want to read from chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, and this idea of God's sovereign election. Romans 9, beginning in verse 9, says this, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It really expresses John Calvin's quote that God's election is not owing to any respect to the individual. We're given the example of Jacob and Esau. They've neither been born, they haven't been born yet, they haven't done good or bad. God's purpose and election will stand. So the first question we ask is, who was John Calvin? There is so much that I could say about the life of John Calvin, and I trust that we'll be encouraged to go and research and read more. I just want to highlight some of the big things in his life and maybe quench some bad, even wrong and untrue arguments about John Calvin and what's called Calvinism. But we start with this. John Calvin was born in 1509 and is regarded as the most important Protestant theologian of all time. The most important. Now, you could say, well, that's pretty subjective. Maybe I think the most important is the one who's affected me the most. Why does he get that, that, that title? Why does he get that position of honor? Well, I would suggest it this way. Even people today who are not Roman Catholic, who would reject anything associated with the name John Calvin are benefiting from Calvin's teachings. The fact that the church has been clearly divided from Roman Catholicism, the Protestant church, is in large part because of Calvin's influence. 
Similarly, a lot of people would reject Augustine of Hippo and they would say, I don't like Augustine's doctrine of God's sovereignty. The entire Western world in modern day was shaped by the ideas that Augustine laid forth. And so clearly and certainly John Calvin was likely the most important Protestant theologian of all time. Now in our day, you guys know this, many people have wrongly come to think of Calvin as either arrogant or self-promoting. Or even people think that Calvin primarily dealt with what's come, become known as Calvinistic doctrines of God's sovereignty. And yet, Calvin's contributions to Christianity are much further reaching than the doctrines of grace. I'll give you one quote from another figure that we all respect. And many people who aren't Reformed at all love Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this about John Calvin. He said that Calvin propounded truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed. Knew more scripture and explained it more clearly. Now that's pretty high praise coming from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon believed that Calvin, that he propounded truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed. That's a pretty compelling reason to take seriously the words of Calvin that Spurgeon had such a high regard for him. God's providence and the timing of Calvin's birth seems, as usual, to be as perfect timing as possibly could have been. During the time of his birth and shortly after his birth, you see the stirrings of Reformation sweeping the land. And Calvin provided a much needed bedrock of explanation of the Reformed truth from the scriptures, which were needed to combat heretical teachings of Rome. And we'll consider this more in a later section here tonight, but just to give you the idea of that last statement, here's what I'm saying is that Calvin, the timing of his birth, you had a lot of people leaving Rome and they're realizing this stuff's not good, but they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily able to show that from the scriptures. They weren't necessarily able to walk through a body of text and, and delineate why this is bad, why this is not okay. Um, Calvin, his writings and teachings were a great help with regard to that. Now, it's interesting to note that John Calvin, I mentioned before, many people, they say, well, John Calvin was arrogant or he's self-promoting. You know, John Calvin never desired a public platform. Never. His own testimony, and if you've read much about him, he, he wanted to live in peace and quiet. He wanted to be a quiet theologian, study the scriptures, write his... his uh, teachings and understanding, but he did not want to be in a position of prominence. He wanted to live a quiet life studying in the shadows. And yet God had other plans for him. And he was repeatedly thrust into positions of prominence. Many people today, even who oppose God's sovereignty, they accuse Calvin of arrogance. And they'll even accuse those of us who have come to agree with him as following a man instead of Christ. You ever heard that argument? I don't know why you got to follow John Calvin. He's a man. Won't you follow Jesus? Well, somebody who says something like that, they're just displaying their own ignorance. It's just flat ignorance. The truth is that what's, been come, what's come to be known as the five points of Calvinism is not anything that John Calvin initiated, and it's not anything that someone today who believes those points attributes primarily to Calvin alone. Historically, what happened was you had the rise of a false teacher by the name of Jacobus Arminius. 
And he was teaching a man-centered, work-centered, me-centered doctrine. And the church came together and said, we need to respond to this guy. He's teaching error. And so they collected Calvin's writings and they said, you know what? We don't agree with Arminius, but Calvin said these things pretty good. Let's use his writings to make our position as a church clear. It was the clarity of Calvin's writings which which caused them to refer to his teachings in dealing with error. It was not Calvin promoting himself. And those today who follow the teachings known as Calvinism or the doctrines of grace are not following John Calvin, but his ability to clearly explain the scriptures. Now, there is much that we could say more yet about John Calvin, but for the, at this point, I want to just be satisfied with recognizing this. God raised him up and used him in an unusually remarkable way. Calvin's commitment to a right understanding of the Scriptures really speaks for itself. And I lay it down even at the beginning that God is pleased to use those who honor His Word. And that's what John Calvin did. He honored the Word of God. The second question we ask is, what was the state of the church during the life of John Calvin? Well, as we've been seeing all the way up until this point in our studies of church history, that the Protestant Reformation was well underway. You remember that, that both Luther and Zwingli had been born um, just a little over 20 years before John Calvin was, and they're already laboring. The efforts of Luther, Zwingli, Bullinger even, and others are already pushing this, this train. It's already this movement away from Roman Catholicism and this is what's going on during John Calvin's life and ministry. And as there's all these people that are departing from Roman Catholic teachings, people are rebelling against and turning from this idea of an ecclesiastical authority, that the papacy and the pope have ultimate authority, and they're turning from a man-centered kind of salvation that's based on your own works. People are turning from that. And at this time, many regions were divided and being found in opposition to either Catholic and as much as I hate to say it, Protestant too. The Catholics weren't the only ones doing this, but if you were opposed to Catholic teaching and you lived in a Catholic teaching, you could be killed for it as a heretic. If you were a Catholic and you were living in a Protestant region, you could be killed as a heretic. Now, we don't certainly don't justify those things and we're not going to start killing heretics here today hopefully but the point is this is the state of the church in this time we've got to look at it honestly and as happens during times like this of stirring and reformation the lines get drawn in the sand and they're being drawn with many people still having a shallow understanding of the bible those who are coming out of the roman catholic church were in need of established truth which could be demonstrated from the scriptures and see, here's the danger. You have these reformers saying, Rome's wrong, they don't understand. And mighty preachers, you have people coming under conviction of the Word of God, and then all of a sudden, before they could listen to a man tell them what the Scriptures meant and just trust whatever he says, now they're coming to their own convictions, and yet, do they have the same ability to work through the Scriptures and see for themselves, to do right exposition work? John Calvin made many contributions as far as that goes. And as I mentioned before, the rise of Jacobus Arminius, that in that Calvin laid a foundation that would serve the church in its defense of the truth for ages to come. 
In many ways, our society today is in need of the same kind of biblical defense that Calvin offered to his own generation. Here's how that context of the church, I'll give you an illustration that helps to make this point. I mentioned there's this polarization, there's this divide. You could be killed for being considered a heretic. A lot of people like to say, well, John Calvin killed Servetus. He killed him because he didn't agree with Calvinism, which is stupid because Calvinism didn't exist during the life of John Calvin. But here's the point. There was a man named Servetus, Michael Servetus, and he was a known heretic. He had already been exiled and run out of a number of countries. He wrote ahead because there were, as we'll see in a minute, there were several people who would flee to Geneva and seek Basically, they would seek a place where they could go and be safe. They would seek a, a place of refuge in Geneva. Many theologically minded people. Well, he wrote ahead to Calvin and said, I want to come there. And Calvin wrote him back and said, don't come here. He knew what Servetus believed. Wrong teachings that Servetus believed concerning the Trinity, concerning Christ. He said, don't come here. If you come here, they're going to kill you. Well, Servetus goes there anyway. He gets there and not Calvin, but the city council arrests him. He's locked up. And then Calvin pleaded with the city council whenever they determined they're going to execute him. Now, it's, we need to be fair. Calvin was not against his execution, but it wasn't Calvin's decision. It was the city council there, basically, in Geneva. And they decided to execute him, and Calvin said, well, at least, at least give him a quick death. Cut his head off. Don't burn him. You know, at least make it quick. Well, they burned him anyway. They didn't listen to Calvin's advice. But that shows you the state that wasn't unique to Geneva. That's everywhere in the world at that time. Heretics were burned. They were killed because people actually believed that heretical teaching was dangerous for your family, for your community. And we've seen how that's played out in our country. Bad teaching about God has a bad impact on society. And so that was the state of the world in this day. No, Calvin was not the one who was ultimately responsible for his death, though he wasn't necessarily opposed to it. And it wasn't for disagreeing with Calvin, it was for maintaining heretical ideas in general. That is one straw man that people like to throw against John Calvin. The next question we ask is, what impact did Calvin have upon the church? Now, it might be a more fitting question to ask, what area of the church did Calvin not impact? You'll be hard-pressed to find a theological work that's more significant, more rich, more full than the institutes of the Christian religion. Even scholars today with, with educations that far exceed my own will wrestle through the depths and weightiness of Calvin's work on the institutes of the Christian religion. It's an incredible work and worthy of your attention. Um, Calvin's reputation, as I mentioned, for handling the scriptures would spread all over the continent and eventually all over the world. And like-minded ministers, and I guess some like Servetus, not so like-minded, would visit Geneva for advice and encouragement from Calvin. John Calvin's dealing with the doctrines of God's sovereignty and salvation was not limited to the way in which God saves someone. But it reached deeper into the scriptures and it set forth a thoroughly biblical, irrefutable defense of God's power and glory in salvation and man's miserable impotence. Now, this was important during the Reformation. God's sovereignty and salvation is just one aspect of what was being advanced through the Protestant Reformation. This truth of God's sovereignty had a special significance in light of the solos. 
the, the solas of the Reformation, the sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola del gloria, that all of salvation is for the glory of God. And it's that's that's this emphasis took every everything that might be ascribed to the glory of man and laid it before God. This is all to God's glory. And so there was an intimate relationship between John Calvin's teachings on the sovereignty of God and the solas of the Reformation. Now, let me say this. It's been suggested that it wasn't actually John Calvin who most thoroughly dealt with God's election. And historically, that's true. People are more likely to attribute Augustine with dealing with thoroughly the issue of God's sovereignty and election. So basically, Calvin's his contribution to the subject was not primarily God chooses who he's going to save, though he believed that and we believe that. Calvin's contribution was this in dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. See, Augustine puts it clearly forward. God chooses who he's going to save. He elects them before the foundation of the world. They have nothing to do with it. It's only God. Calvin comes along and says, and the way that God saves that person and calls them out is through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He believed a person must be born again. And in this, perhaps, he surpassed the incredible writings of Augustine. Calvin's understanding of regeneration promoted a total and complete dependence upon the proclamation of God's word with the only hope of salvation for anyone coming as a direct result of the effectual and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not give life, there will be no life. That's what Calvin emphasized. That's what sets him apart historically. There were many men we've looked at even in this book in church history that believed God was sovereign. They believed that God had his elect. We've been looking at a number of them. So what makes Calvin unique? Why don't we call it you know, any other name? Why, why, is, why is it called Calvinism today? Well, this is primarily the thing that Calvin taught that God, apart from God, supernaturally, in a special way, radically changing the heart of a man or a woman or a child, there would be no saving faith and that they themselves could not contribute anything unless God had already done the work in them. As I mentioned, his institutes of the Christian religion continue today to stretch the hearts and minds of the greatest theologians and scholars of our day and if you have not read them, I encourage you to try to work your way through them, but just prepare to be challenged. Prepare to have your own understanding stretched. What amazes me is how much Calvin and the Institutes deals with the beauties and glories of God in really a subjective way. Because a lot of people today that say, well, I'm a Calvinist and I'm a conservative or I'm this and that, there's a tendency at times for it to come across kind of cold. But that wasn't the case with John Calvin. His heart burned for the glory of God and it came out in a subjective experience in his life and in his writings. That's one of the evident things. Calvin's impact as a theologian often overshadows his faithfulness as a pastor and a preacher. People think of John Calvin and they think great theologian and partly because I started off by saying he's the, probably the greatest you know, a Protestant theologian that's ever lived. Okay. Well, Calvin was a significant man as a pastor and preacher. He was originally forced into ministry at Geneva. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a real significant pastor. They had to force him to do it. 
Well, like I said, he didn't want a prominent position, but as he's passing through, he's basically forced to become the minister there. And yet while he's there, he would not depart from his commitment to the Scriptures. And eventually he was run out of the church and he had to flee. He had to go into exile from Geneva for a little while. And then they reached out to him and said, hey, we want you to come back. We need you to come back. And he, after some reluctance, he finally said, okay, I'll come back, but only if you're committed to the Scriptures. I'm going to be bound to the text of God's Word. That must be the commitment. And so they had him to come back yet again. Calvin's devotion to those that he ministered to is quite obvious, and yet perhaps his faithfulness to the Scriptures was even greater. Calvin is said to have been a mighty preacher in his own right. Testimonies given of him heralding these truths and not just a quiet theologian, but one who would roar in the pulpit and proclaim truth in a way that left people affected by it. Not just walking away thinking, oh, what kind of a theological argument can I make? But actually had the sense of the presence of God in what he was doing. John Calvin, this man who longed for quiet study, and worship of his God, God lifted up as one of his greatest gifts to the church. And today he remains a precious gift to all who have been helped by him. The fourth question or the fourth point is considering the death of John Calvin. So John Calvin died in 1564. He had become seriously ill at the age of 54. And the following, I want to read for you what he said. He he came up with his own, um, his own, his last will and testament, basically. This is from John Calvin out of this book. He knew he was going to die soon, and so he wrote this. Think of this in light of all those who would say Calvin was arrogant. Those who follow Calvin are just full of themselves. They're just promoting a man. Listen to John Calvin. He says this. In the name of God, I, John Calvin, minister of the Word of God in the Church of Geneva, feeling myself reduced so low by diverse maladies that I cannot but think that it is the will of God to withdraw me shortly from this world, have advised to make and set down in writing my testament and declaration of my last will in form. As follows, In the first place I render thanks to God, not only because He has had compassion on me, His poor creature, to draw me out of the abyss of idolatry in which I was plunged, in order to bring me to the light of His gospel and make me a partaker of the doctrine of salvation, of which I was altogether unworthy. And continuing His mercy, He has supported me amid so many sins and shortcomings, which were such that I well deserved to be rejected by Him a hundred thousand times. But what is more, He has so far extended His mercy towards me as to make use of me and my labor to convey and announce the truth of His gospel, protesting that it is my wish to live and die in this faith which He has bestowed on me, having no other hope nor refuge, refuge except in His gratuitous adoption, upon which all my salvation is founded, embracing the grace which He has given me in our Lord Jesus Christ and accepting the merits of His death and passion in order that by this means all my sins may be buried, and praying Him so to wash and cleanse me by the blood of this great Redeemer, which has been shed for us poor sinners, that I may appear before His face, bearing, as it were, His image. 
John Calvin would die shortly after writing that, and it's reported that his last words before death, he was quoting Scripture, asking, How long, O Lord, as he awaited his entrance into glory? I say to us all, this was not an arrogant man, but one who had come to depend solely and completely upon God, the power of God in all that he did, even to his dying day. The fifth question we ask is, what impact should the life of John Calvin have upon us today? Of course, we know many that would say none. Don't need to have any impact from that guy. Well, in light of so much slander that's been spread against those who agree with John Calvin, um, and also as well as John Calvin's own desire to escape the spotlight, I feel safe in saying that Calvin wouldn't want us to live in light of him at all. He probably would roll over in his grave if he knew that people were bearing his name as a branch of Christianity. Rather, I think he would urge us to live according to the Scriptures, to be concerned, con concerned with upholding the truth of God's Word and be consumed by the Word of God, so much so that it would radiate every aspect of, of our lives. And as we consider all that he faced... And as we look at a culture and society around us, I wonder, do we see a similar trend today to exalt man, to diminish God, to diminish God's power? I wonder, should we be shocked at all that there are so many people that are utterly miserable and depressed when the primary message of religion that they hear is about a God who's totally dependent on them? People face difficulty every day and they're being told, oh, there's a God and He wants to do good things for you, but He can't do anything without your help. If that's not a depressing message, I don't know what is. But here, even as John Calvin faced, the glory of God's sovereignty, I would suggest to you, is a soft pillow to rest upon in the face of adversity. The sovereignty of God is a strong tower and refuge to run to in the face of our own failures. And the sovereignty of God is a mighty hope for us as we declare the gospel to others. We believe, as Calvin believed, that not only is God mighty in offering salvation, but He is mighty to save. That's the testimony and at least a short, hopefully helpful, synopsis of the life of John Calvin. And so... Hopefully we'll be encouraged by that and it'll impact us as God's people. So now, go ahead and pray and we'll close this portion out and we can gather together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You that You are infinitely higher, more exalted and mightier than any man, John Calvin or any other that the only goodness that's seen in any of your servants is their understanding of you and your word. No man gets the glory, only you. Father, I pray that you would convict us according to these things and help us to depend upon your power and trust you as we seek to live unto you. Father, I pray that you would bless our time together in prayer this evening. In Jesus' name.